Chapter 5 of A Year's Prayer Meeting Talks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Year's Prayer Meeting Talks by Lewis Albert Banks. Chapter 5 Provoking One Another to Good Works. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2. The word provoke, as used in the scriptures, is usually on the wrong side of the ledger. It is often used throughout the Old Testament in connection with the bringing of judgment upon Israel because of their sins against God. And more than once in the New Testament, Paul uses it in warning parents to such care in the treatment of their children as not to provoke in them sinful tempers. We have set before us here, however, the right kind of provoking. We have suggested the possibility of our so doing duty, and so incarnating the Christian spirit in our lives, that our character and conduct will provoke in others a desire to live the kind of life exemplified in us. I think the only life that can possibly have that power to give fresh impulse to others must in its nature be positive and aggressive. It must not only be good, but it must be vitally and positively good. I do not mean that it must be noisily good, but that there must be about it a virile and conquering quality that will make conquest of the imagination and desires of others. I think there has been a great deal too much emphasis put at times on what we give up for Christ, Many people just entering the Christian life, as well as those who have been Christians long enough to know better, seem to lay nearly all the emphasis of their Christian thinking on what shall I give up for Christ. But it seems to me, when we turn the whole matter over and look on the other side of it and ask, what can I be and do that will best show my love for Christ? There is no trouble about answering the first question. There is no virtue in simply giving up things. We need to take up the Christian character and life with such devotion and enthusiasm and wear it with such love and fidelity that we shall make it seem beautiful and attractive to the people who behold us. It is not enough that we are true and honest. We must be beautifully true and graciously honest. We are urged to live so attractively that we shall adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Paul suggests this possibility in the twelfth of Romans, where he says, He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. How many times gifts are made which are good and generous in themselves, and serve a good purpose, and yet are made with so much display, and made to so minister to egotism and pride, that they lose their best influence on the public heart, and have a tendency rather to discourage other people from giving than to provoke them to like generosity. They lack the adornment of simplicity, which is the one flower that can make giving beautiful. Again, in the same chapter, Paul writes, He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Did you never receive mercy from someone in such an ugly, morose way that you felt as if you wanted to slap the person who showed it? The mercy was granted in such a manner that it left a bad taste in your mouth forever afterward? It lacked the adornment, the jewel of cheerfulness, which takes all the sting out of receiving mercy at the hands of another. 
You may find another illustration in the case of the ten lepers whom Christ sent away to their cleansing. All of them were healed, but only one came back to give thanks to the Savior. There is a great deal of pathos in Christ's question, Where are the nine? I do not think it correct for us to say that the other nine were not thankful, or that they were frauds and had no faith. Every one of them had faith enough to be healed. No, the only trouble with the other nine was this. They did not have the gracious and beautiful spirit of thanksgiving which would have brought them back, with the one who did come, to express their gratitude to God. Are there not many who are living just the same way today? They believe in God and in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. They live prayerful, honorable lives. If it were necessary, they would go to the stake before they would renounce Jesus. Yet they do not make their lives beautiful by a constant spirit of thanksgiving, ready everywhere, in business and in social life, to give Christ credit as the source of all that is noble and sweet in character and career. And yet it is only by so completely surrendering our lives in personal devotion to Christ that these attractive traces of the Spirit will by their beauty and their perfume provoke others to soul gardening on their own account. In living such a life, in being such a man or woman, we shall attain without difficulty the service which we ought to render to Christ. Grand Phillips Brooks never uttered a greater truth than when he said, Love utters itself in duty, and duty strengthens love. If duty grows weak, it must climb to the fountainhead of love and drink. If love grows doubtful and hesitates, it must lean and steady itself on the strong staff of duty. It takes both of these to make life complete in a world in which there is no love without its duty and no duty without its love. It is a most inspiring thought that never did yet God put any high emotion in the soul of any of his children, that God's word did not instantly stand before that child with a duty in its hand, saying, This is the task which belongs to your new impulse. Do this task, and the love shall be really yours, not merely the fleeting gleam of a passing sunbeam on your bosom, but the settled warmth of a perpetual sunshine in your heart. Never does a new love descend from heaven that a new duty does not spring out of the earth. God fills your soul with pity, and even while you think upon it, some great need knocks at your door. God gives you courage, and the oppressed and neglected flee under your strong arm for protection. God gives you light, and the cloud of some ignorance rolls up out of the night, demanding your daylight to cause it to flee away. Let us be in our place a Christ, and God will give us Christ's work to do in our day and time, and he will let none of our work done in this spirit be lost. The look of sympathy, the gentle word, spoken so low that only angels heard, the secret act of pure self-sacrifice, unseen by men but marked by angels' eyes, these are not lost. The happy dream that gladdened all our youth when dreams had less of self and more of truth, the childhood's faith so tranquil and so sweet, which sat like Mary at the Master's feet, these are not lost. The kindly plan devised for others' good, 
so seldom guessed, so little understood, the quiet, steadfast love that strove to win, some wanderer from the torturous way of sin, these are not lost. Not lost, O Lord, for in thy city bright our eye shall see the past by clearer light, and things long hidden from our gaze below thou wilt reveal, and we shall surely know, these are not lost. End of chapter 5